Take a network break, grab a virtual donut, sit back and relax, and take a journey with us through Elysian fields of tech news analysis. We've got stories today on Cisco, VMware, a new PCAP appliance, and more. A couple of bits of business to take care of first. It's time to take control of your optics purchases with InterOptic. You can purchase the same, if not better, performing optical transceivers tested and designed by engineers who truly understand the specifications that are critical to your network and at a fraction of typical OEM costs. Get more information at interoptic.com packet dash pushers. And join us after the news to hear how the country's largest wholesale grocer is improving application performance and getting happier customers with SD-WAN from sponsor Silverpeak. And if you like the network break, check out our other podcasts, including Heavy Networking, Day 2 Cloud, IP, V6, Buzz, and Full Stack Journey. It's nerdy tech analysis and compelling conversations about infrastructure, cloud, professional development, and more. You can find it all at packetpushers.net. All right, Greg, let's get to the news. Cisco has announced it will acquire Fluid Mesh. This is a privately held company that specializes in wireless backhaul for industrial use cases. Cisco did not disclose the acquisition price. Yeah, so if they don't disclose the acquisition price, it's not huge enough to make a difference on the numbers. So anything yeah. under 100, 150 million, probably not substantial. And yeah. Cisco, so not a big purchase in that sense. Um, as best as I can tell, they're an outdoor wireless networking company, but also a proprietary one. So they've got, uh, I think, a combination of open source technologies or open standards, and then they've also got a proprietary technology, which are they, and I quote, innovative transmission protocol is built to overcome the limits of standard wireless protocols, security, and deliver an infrastructure <laughs> that keeps those pesky hackers away. Um, so now they're claiming they've got a secure wireless protocol in an era when secure networks aren't really the thing. Mostly what we want is an overlay of secure networks, but okay, I guess if you're building military networks, you have a secure physical you know, network layer and then you have secure protocols on top. That's fair enough, but that's a pretty niche piece of marketing. Um, I don't know, it just feels a bit, and it's also outdoor wireless, it's not indoor wireless. So all of the products, when you go and look at the website for Fluid Mesh before it disappears, is all of this hardened outdoor stuff and all weatherproof yeah. and, and, and so all... Very IoT, um, which I thought was interesting. I, I sort of felt like Cisco's wireless team, when I've been in presentations with them, they've always bragged about their ability to design the hardware in the best way that customers want, and they do a lot of work. And to buy a company that does outdoor, you know, isolated boxes like this feels a bit like uh, we can't do it in-house, so let's just buy someone for it. Bit of a, bit of a slap in the teeth. Well, maybe. I mean, the, the, I think the gear for outdoor, and it looks like industrial use cases like uh, railroads and oil and drilling platforms and that kind of stuff where there are harsh environments, you, it doesn't hurt to have specialization. The thing that sticks in my craw is the, the proprietary wireless protocol aspect of it, which feels like, you know, sort of the, the strategy back in the 90s of building wireless, mm. uh, building proprietary protocols to sort of lock your customer in seems like a bad idea. And when anybody says, "Are we did this because it's more secure for us to do it this way, also <laughs> yeah, my antenna. Well, I mean, if the, the flip side of it is is that when you're doing long-haul wireless, interoperability is less a concern because you're normally doing point-to-point -point and you're pointing two antennas at each other and usually install each one as a single unit. You don't buy, you know, brand A from vendor A and, you know, the BN from vendor B. Usually you install them as a single unit. You run them for 10 to 20 years and then throw them at the bin. So it's I'm less... I'm less distressed about it overall because it's not like interoperability is a major concern, but the idea that you need um, security in the network is a bit old-fashioned when we're moving to an era where all of the protocols over the top are using TLS 1.3. You don't need security in the network. So that's less of a deal to me. Um, and they also talked a lot about um, 
they have a capacity manage they have a capacity licensing so we know cisco likes to license technology they don't like to sell it to you so you buy it you're done with it they're very big on finding ways to license it and fluid mesh has a capacity licensing plan so that would tie nicely into the way cisco wants to sell products forward they'd rather sell it to you now at 100 megs and then when you upgrade to a, a gig they charge you more when it's 10 gig well you're consuming more so therefore we have to charge you more right so the value delivered is chargeable sort of thing Absolutely, and not not just Cisco. Everybody's doing that. Mm, yeah, it's it's um, it's good for Cisco's business. I'm not at all sure it's good for customer businesses, and the jury you know, <laughs> remains out. I think the days of uh, you know, once upon a time we would have bought this technology, um, deployed it, and then you sweat the assets for a few years until the you know, uh, you might write it off over three years, but you might get ten years worth of use. So you actually get most mm-hmm. of the profit from this transaction. Whereas if you're paying ten years worth of licensing but still paying the same price as you paid before, then you're actually losing out substantially. But see, uh, that licensing scheme was called Fluid Throttle, and it was pitched as reduce the cost of ownership, select the amount of throughput you need. I'm thinking, reduce the cost of ownership, it actually increases it, but that's just me. Yeah, it might be sort of a CapEx versus OpEx play. It doesn't cost as much up front, but over time you will still pay. Yeah. Best as I can calculate any sort of licensing scheme, you end up paying three times as much over a 10-year period if you're going to keep it for 10 years. So if you're going to throw it out every three years, well, then you're probably going to come out winning. The other thing I noted about it was Fluid Mesh was talking about it. They have an MPLS-based protocol able to roam from one base station to another. Now, this is quite unique because this aspect of the proprietary protocol means they can put it on trains and trucks and cars. So if you're uh, an airport and you want to start having in wireless connectivity inside of, uh, say, automated vehicles moving around the airport or you've got the you know, various things happening on airports, you want to have mobile wireless for trains or the, the things that do the pushback on the on the tarmac and all that sort of stuff, provided you can get the wireless approved, right. then this can actually solve uh, video, voice, and data streaming uninterrupted while your vehicle might be moving up to 220 miles an hour. So that's vehicle-to-ground communication and at handoff, seamlessly handoff. So that's quite, an, that's quite a substantial thing, and they claim it's using MPLS-based Thing over their proprietary wireless so that is actually quite a good niche um, and something that cisco you know would be well suited to selling to the appropriate customers for that sort of thing yeah it's going to go in their industrial iot business yeah and it'll tie in nicely with the jasper you know where they have the, the platform and the and the device edge stuff and and they've got a whole you know embrace of a whole platform in there that they're trying to sell and this will be a nice complement to that i think Yep. Links in the show notes as always if you want to check out check it out for yourself. Uh, some other news: VMware has announced version 3.0 of NSXT, its SDN software platform. The latest version includes NSX Federation, which lets you create separate NSX domains within a data center or from a data center to public cloud. And the goal is to provide better fault isolation by limiting network issues to a single zone. And your domains will be individually managed by a local manager, and then a global manager can federate policies across all the domains. Uh, it's a good feature too. Um, it's funny how it's it just strikes me how quickly NSXT is iterating. It was like VMware touted it for quite some time, but didn't ship it, didn't ship it. And then when it shipped, it wasn't really in all the things. It was only in some of it. And then very quickly, they've gone from nothing to version three. So from version one to version three, at least it feels that way to me. Um, And this ability to finally sort of get this federation where you can have multiple controllers in multiple locations, including public clouds and private clouds, does give you this um, failover scenarios or redundancies or resiliency scenarios that you haven't been able to have with NSX. And you've sort of, I've seen customers sort of get a bit antsy about 
you know, if my controllers lose connectivity with the switches, things stop go a bit square. Mm. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's a lot of other new features in there as well. Yeah, they've also, I think, feel like we talked about this, but it's now official. They've got what they're calling true firewalling functionality beyond sort of the micro-segmentation capabilities that came with NSX. Uh, so these virtual firewalls that can be distributed throughout the data center are put close to the workloads, and they've also got IDS, IPS capabilities, so you can detect, uh, use signature-based detection against known attacks. Yeah, so we're seeing this carbon black and the previous acquisitions like the platinum security products are all starting to come together into the networking stack. Firewalls, IDS, load balancers, Microsegmentation, yeah, identity management, application recognition. It, you know, this NSX is really becoming quite mature and appears to be scaling up. Like if I was SDNing the data center would and only the data center, then NSX does have a, you know, a, an all-round portfolio that has all the features you probably don't even know you didn't want. Um, and and in the inclusion of things like virtual firewalls and IDS, IPS in there, as well as application scanning and application detection is pretty amazing uh, on the whole because every time you add a server, effectively you're adding more IDS, more IPS, right. more firewall capacity, yep. more, you know, da-da-da-da. Whereas in the old old way of, you know, devices, then it's sort of... Not- right, and by virtualizing it and running it close to the workload, you aren't tromboning traffic, sending it out to a firewall for inspection and back in and so on. And you mm. can also sort of customize the rules based on the workload. So essentially they have like a feature where if you're uh, fronting a firewall in front of, say, an Apache server workload, you don't run the Microsoft Windows uh, signature sets, which should reduce false positives and also reduce the processing load. Yeah, and they also talked a lot about how they're um, starting to bond the SD-WAN. I think it was about nine months ago, I think, I predicted that NSX and VeloCloud would eventually integrate. So the micro-segmentation of the data center and the micro-segmentation that you get in the SD-WAN, and these two will start to stitch together. And in another set of announcements, we heard Sanjay Upal from VeloCloud talking about that and saying, yes, we're getting much closer to stitching those micro-segments together. It's a bit early, I think, is what they said. But you're eventually going to have you know, the, the VMware SD-WAN will integrate with the NSX in the data center, so you'll become straight in. Now, that also means that your SD-WAN will integrate with your public cloud instances. And so along those lines, they also talked about VMware's virtual cloud network, which is the when you start using NSX on AWS, Azure, Alibaba Cloud, Google Cloud, IBM Cloud, and Oracle Cloud. And that means that pretty much as well as your private cloud, of course, that you can actually run this whole networking strategy right the way across all of them. Yeah, and we're seeing lots of uh, networking vendors try to provide this sort of, uh, I guess the, the terminology is you know is guide rails uh, for your networking constructs in the public cloud and in the private cloud. Use the same tools, the same policies, the same security controls, regardless of where you are. Yeah, and if you're a company that likes to buy, you know, single throat to choke, one butt to kick, one hand to shake, whatever it is your chosen metaphor. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> I like the one butt to yeah. kick. Although, yeah. yes. <laughs> Uh, you know, a little violent, you know or you know, one chest to hug is another one I've heard. Uh, <laughs> um, the, then this, the, you know, they've got a full suite that actually quite a bit more comprehensive than the competitive networking companies. The only thing they don't have, of course, is the physical switches. But I think at this point, we sort of, for some people at least, you can say, well, I don't um, need the physical stuff to come from the same vendor because there's an abstraction between the two that seems to be just doing just fine. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and sort of parsing the tea leaves from all the briefings we've gotten, they're not interested in getting into the physical switch game. They want to virtualize as much of the networking stack as they can. So they'll, they'll partner where they need to and leave the physical stuff to other people. Yeah, and and continually sort of iterating in this space and making solid acquisitions. So the vRealize network inspection, VRNI, which is their analytics platform, got a big plug. Log Insight, you know, they're saying that they're looking deeper into the logs and starting to, and you can see where they've been making acquisitions to do, you know, what what most people call AI, ML, deep learning, you know, whatever, intelligent, to scan the logs and look for errors and say, oh, this thing's been pretty bad, you know. Yeah. Yep. Uh, one other little note. Also, it's vRealize Network Insight, not Network Inspector, just to clarify. Oh, yeah, that. sorry. Um, yeah. On, no worries. On, on the, there's a lot of stuff in there. On the VeloCloud front, uh, VeloCloud is one of the industry partners working with Azure on Azure Edge Zones. Edge Zones essentially bundle compute and Azure services at edge locations for local data processing and storage. So companies can use VeloCloud to connect these edge zones. Other industry partners working with Azure include Palo Alto, Nuage, and Metaswitch. Yeah, so lots of partnerships there. I, I'd be nervous partnering with VMware because I think ultimately, you know, <laughs> chances are you know, they're going to stomp on you they're gonna the dancing elephant thing but it's <laughs> unless you're doing hardware but if you are particularly into a hardware integrated thing then just buy dell because vmware and dell are basically the same company the only reason D vmware is not tightly linked with dell is because vmware gets a substantial part of its revenue from third parties like ibm cisco hpe they don't want to be seen too close to dell because that sort of upset that apple cart for the time being hmm. Hmm. I don't know that VMware would have uh, be, be an elephant big enough to stomp Microsoft Azure, but uh. <laughs> won't stop them from trying. <laughs> sure, no, why yeah, not? Why not? <laughs> they all got they've all got big dreams, and and you know they all talk a big game. Yes. they like to talk a big game and deliver very little. So it's all talk until it till it's delivered, right? Yep. Uh, links in the show notes, as always, if you want to check it out. Moving on, startup Cato Networks has secured $77 million in a Series D funding round, bringing total investment in the cloud-based SD-WAN security company to $202 million. I'd like to see the structure of this deal. Is it $770 million in straight-up cash, or is it a debt line of $77 million? Um, right. a, a lot of the startups have been going out for extra cash, and in in during this you know COVID-19 pandemic and trying to get the cash in through the door because they think there's either going to be a recession and they're going to need to weather it out. $77 million doesn't mm -hmm. feel like a lot, you know, that they've taken in. Their, their total funding now is $202 million, yeah. Right. So, you know, that doesn't feel like an overlock, but Cato Networks was one of the first companies to sort of be the sassy, you know, the secure access or secure edge SD-WAN where the firewall yep. and the security functions were pretty much uh, integrated with there. So... You know, they've got a pretty good profile. They'll be able to make a good pitch to vendors that they've got something uh, going on there. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah, $77 million. I, I feel like it's a tidy sum. And in the midst of this global pandemic, which mm. is causing economic upheaval, one, it's sort of a, a sign of confidence uh, from the venture community that they think they've got something here. Mm. Uh, and two, you know, it, it could be a stabilizing force. Like, yes, we've got some cash coming and who knows how it's distributed. They may have to hit certain metrics to get parts of it released. We don't know the details because it's not in the press release. But I also feel like it's a safe bet because SD-WAN and the SASE market, are, they're growing right now. Yeah. And right now, remote access and security are top priorities so cato and others like it i think are of the industries out there sort of the best positioned as you can be in this environment uh to, to weather a crisis yeah and having a little extra cash on hand doesn't no help. and it, it certainly and helps. it looks like they've tapped most of their existing investors so if i look at the 
The data, they talk about Singtel and Aspect Ventures and Greylock Partners were part of the Series D. So that means the existing investors are kicking in money to hold on to their position in the stock, to hold their percentage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, the re- some new partner is from Lightspeed. So you'd have to see the percentages, which you're not going to get. But lists Lightspeed Venture Partners as the lead investor here. So it'd be interesting mm-hmm. to see, you know, Given that your existing investors are still putting in money to hold the percentage, they're not they're not being diluted. They still think there's a thing here, so that that's a very positive sign for the business side of Cato. Yeah, I think so. All right, here's an internet milestone. It's been 51 years since the first IETF RFC was published. The RFC describes some general agreements on how hosts and interface message processors, which are proto routers, would communicate. So, hey, 51 years. That felt felt like something. Of a thing, like 51 years of networking, the first uh, RFC was published 50 years ago. So just in case you thought networking was modern and all fancy and new, it's not. It's really old. It's kind of funny reading through it. Like you're, you're like, okay, yeah, I, the, the, the things haven't, the numbers have gotten bigger, but things really haven't changed that Not much. a whole lot. This is the interesting thing about networking is when you go back and sort of do some, you know, uh, diving through the archives and, and think about the history of networking, you sort of come out the other side. Uh, thinking really nothing has changed in a very long period of time. We still use distance vector or state stateful routing. You know, OSPF or RIP, RIP and BGP are pretty much the same thing. And the idea of packets hasn't changed since, you know, 1970. So, uh, yeah, not necessarily a very modern technology group data networking even today. Or you could say they sort of generally got it right the first time. So it's just been working on the edges ever since. <laughs> or you could say, <laughs> if you want to be nicer about it. <laughs> I, I would say it wasn't bad and it's still not bad enough to change. How's that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> of course. Yes. Uh, the fa- my favorite tidbit in, in looking through the RFC is that uh, it reserves five bits for the host address. So talking about how numbers have grown since then. Oh, IPv6, eh? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> exactly. 32 bits was enough for everybody, but now we're trying to get to 128 and we're still struggling. So, That's I right. did a show for the IP6 Buzz this week. We dropped in for their 50th episode and we did the recording. Yeah. It'll publish in a week or two. You know, we're still sort of, I'm still talking about the same problems with IPv6 broadly uh, that we were 10 or 15 years ago. So it's, you know, networking moves slowly. Uh- I'm curious to listen to see how many grenades you brought with you for that show. <laughs> the 50th episode. Have a listen. Take it. <laughs> uh, the 25 gigabit Ethernet Consortium has put out a press release to announce that it is now rebranding to become the Ethernet Technology Consortium. Uh, by the way, it also announced an 800 gigabit Ethernet spec, which sort of feels like they buried the lead. Yeah, so the ultimate expression of the pre-meeting meeting, pre-meeting, pre-meeting thing... It continues on its merry way because um, it took me a little while to twink that the Ethernet Consortium is the old 25 gig and they really just got together to define the uh, 25 gig data rate because there was a, a a thing going on at the time that they were just going to do 10 and then go to 100 and then Arista decided mm-hmm. they wanted to push the 25 gig standard a lot harder and that was largely led by the public cloud providers, so AWS and Azure and Google. And Arista mm. got together. And then later on, that consortium was then to decide on the OSPF, QSPF optical thing where we actually had a divergence. And again, the cloud providers wanted the OSPF SFP module and the general market went with the QSFP. And that's the way it's been. The QSFP has pretty much outrated it. but uh, So there's only a few companies making OS, OSPF modules. But now they seem to have rebranded them back to, together 
in 2019, they announced that they were pursuing a technology doing forward error correction on the Ethernet links. So if you had errors, it would be able to try and sustain any sort of packet drops and losses and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden this month it comes completely out of hibernation after basically doing nothing. So the last thing they did was in 2017, then some stuff in 2019, and now it's a rebranding and we're on to 800 gig. It just feels like... What? Why? Why am I doing this? <laughs> I don't know. Right. We, we've also already got the Ethernet Alliance, not to mention the IEEE and the IETF. So, yeah. uh, but I guess, yeah, folks have issues that they're trying to put out. And so that's what we yeah, get. Yeah. It, you know, th- this is this pre-meeting meeting thing. So the standards bodies are also dysfunctional. The people get together to sort of work out what they're going to say so that the standards process doesn't get railroaded or stuck. And uh, mm. But now you've actually got two pre-meeting meetings that seem to be competing with each other, and uh, that generally doesn't bode well. <laughs> so, and you look at the membership of the two, and it's pretty much all the same people, and I'm going like, uh, why is there two? Well, you know, right. so if there's anybody out there who not, and you're on these bodies and you want to get in touch and explain to me why the Ethernet Alliance is not the Ethernet Consortium and what the differentiators are and what the different value propositions are, uh, get in contact because I'd be curious to know. All right, please do. A quick break to tell you about our sponsor today, InterOptic. It's time to take control of your optics purchases with InterOptic. You can purchase the same, if not better, performing optical transceivers tested and designed by engineers who understand the specifications that are critical to your network, and you get the better fraction of OEM costs. Fortune 500 companies choose InterOptic to maximize IT savings and minimize the risk of network failures. InterOptic is the trusted optical transceiver supplier for many federal, state, and local government networks. Why continue to pay OEM prices? Start talking to the InterOptic experts who deliver over brand equivalent transceivers at a fraction of the price. Their devices are 100% compatible with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, and others. They employ rigorous testing on their devices and physically test every single transceiver. So get your optics from a quality and established company that spent thousands of hours testing devices to ensure they work seamlessly in your applications. As your network gets more complex, you want to work with the optic experts at InterOptic. And you can find out more at interoptic.com slash packet dash pushers. That's interoptic.com slash packet dash pushers. Back to the news. Live Action has released a new packet capture appliance. It can capture up to 40 gigabits per second of packets. The appliance is the Live Capture 3100. It's a 2RU appliance with options for 64 or 128 terabytes of storage capacity and 192 gigabytes of memory. Oh, I do love me some hardware. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The the interesting thing about uh, OmniPeak, the analyzer, and and the products that Live Action put together is that they're really focused on this capturing packets at very high data rates because that is a substantially hard problem and capturing every single packet at 400 gigs and 800 gigs is a sort of you know there's only a handful of companies out there that can do that and if you need it you need a hardware appliance to be able to do that and the other interesting thing i drew from this was that they're also taking packets and turning them into flows so if you have a a, a link of some sort and there's packets flowing through it and you want to export xflow or uh, sflow or netflow from it so that you can do some form of analytics it also does that as well and that's a really neat trick yeah, that is an option on the boxes, although when I was briefed by them, they were careful to say that if you turn on that capacity to export flow records, IP fix flow records, uh, while you're also doing packet capture, your packet capture uh, capability is going to drop significantly. You won't get 40 gigabits per second of raw packet capture. It's going to drop to around 17 gigabits per second. Uh, but you do get that flow export feature with it if you want. Yeah, and if that's a design problem you've got, this is a unique sort of a tool because normally you would have to put a router in or a switch in the path and that's not necessarily what you want. 
uh, and this is just an analyzer captures all the packets if you want to be able to capture all the packets and store them for forensics and then also uses an analytic point so you can capture just the raw packet feed and feed it into your analytics neat neat trick amongst you know among the other things that it can actually do well yeah, and just so uh, to remind folks, uh, Live Action acquired Savius back in 2018, and this new product is coming from the Savius side of the house. So it integrates with OmniPeak, which is the protocol analyzer, as well as Live Action telemetry dashboard, so you can get views into flows, SNMP, telemetry, and then click into do your packet analysis. For sure. Right. A Russian telecom provider redirected thousands of internet traffic routes through its systems last week, affecting traffic from giants such as Google, Amazon, and Cloudflare. It's not clear whether Ross Telecom, which is Russia's state-owned telco, made a mistake with their BGP or whether this was a deliberate <laughs> It doesn't appear to be deliberate. So <laughs> is, is the short story here, or the, you know, saved you a click type of version of this? Um, so lots of the press coverage was pushing for the woo-woos, you know, tinfoil hat brigade. Oh, the Russians are attacking us and taking all of our traffic, blah, blah, blah. But it, most likely, and the consensus of the people on the internet, I was catching up with the BGP Mon BGP stream and following their tweets, and they're saying most likely this was an attempt by somebody to do traffic steering. So everybody's doing at stay at home, and a lot of the telcos are trying to shift traffic loads around to keep the network mm. load balanced because, you know, people aren't, at work, they're at home, and that's changing some of the traffic patterns in the exit points. And so this looks far more likely someone did an attempt to steer some traffic and failed and got their BGP wrong for a short period of time. Uh, the point to note, as somebody pointed out to me, I did record something with Dave Temkin uh, and a few others on this topic, and they said, you know, the, the good thing to note is that the adoption of RPKI and the general progress in securing the BGP routing tables over the years has actually made the impact of this far less than it used to be. So there has been a lot of work to try and improve this over time. So less, not much to worry about. Lots of noise, no fire. Okay. And also to note that this uh, misconfiguration, if that's what it was, only lasted an hour or so. So again, minimizing the, the, the potential that this was on purpose. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it mostly looks like something that was a mistake and uh, what I call the secret council of the internet, which is basically in each of these companies, there's a handful of people who, you know, know how these things work. And they often all know each other because they see each other and they've all worked with each mm. other in different companies. They just ring each other up and say, that doesn't look very right. And they go, oh, let me get that fixed for you. You know, and that's usually about an hour it takes for that to someone to notice it and then for people to get on the phone. So. I, I like the Secret Council of the Internet. I wonder if they have, like, cool robes and stuff. <laughs> no, they, they don't, and they also don't like being called the Secret Council of the Internet, I found out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There you go. <laughs> All right, well, following in the footsteps of other tech events, Microsoft has announced that all of its events will be online until July of 2021. And as far as I can recall, this is the longest public postponement of tech events by a major company. Yeah, uh, that is a long way out. So that's till the middle of next year, which sort of suggests that Microsoft's taking the view that the um, impact of the pandemic means that they will not be willing to run any events in person or to spend money to, to start planning events until July 2021. Now, is that mm -hmm. excessive? Um, you know, we've talked about it on this show because a lot of people say, you know, say you should go to conferences. It's a key part of your career. I think my point would be is that I don't think we'll see any major conferences until Q2 2021. I wouldn't have said Q3 2021, like calendar Q3, but till Q2. But I don't think even if you have an event between now and then, people will turn up. I think only a very small number of people would hold it, and that makes events uneconomic. So Microsoft's probably just going all in and saying, 
well, we think this is the way it's going to go. Our planning and testing of, of customer testing and, you know, emergency planning says it's just not going to start until the middle of next year. And it doesn't sound unreasonable to me. I think from an event planning perspective, it's smart to just put a stake in the ground and say, all right, all virtual until this point, because it removes the uncertainty internally and lets planners figure out the best way to make a good event online and stop some thinking about when are we going to switch back to live. And also if the situation does get better, Microsoft can always switch hmm. uh, and change their policy. But in the meantime, conference planners can just kind of get on with trying to create the best digital event they can. The challenge here, of course, is how do we make these virtual events interesting and compelling? Because if you fly to a conference and you sit in the room, you engage because you're kind of forced to, right? And there are so many conferences that I've been to, you go and sit in the room and the content is trash because they know they don't have to do deliver good content to keep you in the room. And so a lot of people who are now looking at how to run virtual events and thinking of ways to make them interesting. And we're struggling at the moment because it's really difficult because getting interesting content out there is not easy at all. Um, And I think also there's going to be part of how do you learn to sit in a virtual conference and give it the same focus? Because the temptation is to sit in a a virtual event, you know, webinar style or a presentation or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's easy to be distracted or start answering your emails or whatever and miss what's going on. And I think that, In the same way that when I had to go from reading textbooks to reading on a computer screen, I struggled with that for a number of of years until I sat down and said to myself, well, you know, I went to, I I spent years learning how to read a textbook. I never spent years learning how to read a PDF. So it's okay to take time to learn or to practice something until it becomes a habit. That makes sense? Absolutely. And it is a habit, uh, essentially, learn, figuring out how to stay engaged when you're sitting online in front of something when with just a click, you can go do something. Yeah. Else. And I mean, the obvious thing is to actually take your no- force yourself to take notes. So open a maybe with a pen and paper or maybe with a notes, you know, notepad or something like that. A digital notepad, just yep. make notes and that'll keep you engaged so your attention doesn't wander. Um, and that's you. I think people have to start thinking that I, I, I I have to practice this. This isn't a natural skill. You, just like everything else that you like, sitting in a meeting is not a natural skill. You learned yep. how to attend meetings. In fact, I've been to companies who put you into meeting training and how to do meetings efficiently and properly. Right? <laughs> That's not a joke, by the way. Um, I, and it shouldn't be because a lot of people run meetings very badly. Exactly. So don't take time to think about how you engage with virtual events so you can extract the value from them. Don't just sort of say yeah and then sit in the meeting and, and find out the other end of an hour you go like well that was a waste of time well that'll be your fault a for choosing it and b for not making the most of what you got and speaking of how these events might change i would love it if conference planners decided to make keynotes shorter sharper fewer guests fewer rah-rah cheerleading fewer here's bob from uh, bmw <laughs> to tell us how fantastic things are at bmw because of product x mm. just cut that no <laughs> just cut it no just nobody cares just cut to the story yeah <laughs> cut to the chase if you need to, if yeah. you need to big up yourself, go and uh, start a social media influencing career, and uh, you know, <laughs> start a foundation. Yeah, that, that'll do yeah. it. Or do it for free because you'll do it. You know, you need the exposure. That's right. <laughs> One last item, uh, Juniper Networks is extending the expiration date of its professional certifications by six months, so any certification that has expired or is set to expire between March 1st and September 30th of 2020 is automatically going to be extended by six months from the expiration date. And on the testing front, Juniper is going to extend the expiration date of Pearson View exam vouchers by six months. The company is also making test from home options available. There's links in the show notes if you want details. Yeah, uh, so micro certifications, of course, are always useful for certain jobs, especially if you work for like resellers or you want to move your career forward and demonstrate you've got specific skills 
And this time, this pandemic means obviously you can't go out and keep your certifications up to date. So the extension is natural. Keep in mind that all the vendors have offered similar programs. So if you've got a branded micro certification, they've extended mo- just about all the vendors, I think, have extended them now and said you've got time to recertify, et cetera, et cetera. So do go and yeah. check them. In this case, it's just Juniper, yeah. but I also wanted to call it out more generally that all of the certifications, and you probably need to go and touch base. Some of them, I think, you may even need to go and you know log in and click a button to say extend my cert. So just make sure you go and check them if they're important to you. Yeah. Yeah, but we've talked about Juniper, we've talked about AWS, we've talked about Cisco specifically because I've seen press releases or announcements mm-hmm. on it, but I'm sure others are doing the same thing, and if not, reach out and ask because it's a very legitimate thing to yeah, ask for. Yeah, exactly. And ex- and extending the voucher thing is a good idea because, you know, people won't be... Absolutely. Yeah. Good PR, good PR. Yeah. All right, well, that does it for the news portion. Stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with CNS Wholesaler on their SD-WAN journey with Silverpeak. That's coming right up. Welcome to Tech Bytes, a 15-minute podcast that gives you a quick but comprehensive look at products and technologies in the real world. Our sponsor today is Silverpeak, and we're talking SD-WAN with their customer, CNS Wholesale Grocers. This is the largest wholesale grocer in the United States. Our guest is Leonard Bernstein. He is Senior Director of Infrastructure and Service Delivery. And Leonard, welcome to the podcast. Can you get us started with a quick overview of CNS and your network profile? Thanks for having me, guys. appreciate it. CNS Wholesale Grocers is a wholesale grocer located in uh, Keene, New Hampshire, uh, about 100 years old at this point, uh, the largest, lead, largest privately held organization uh, within the United States in the wholesale business, in the wholesale grocery business. And uh, they are industry leaders in the supply chain innovation regarding groceries and other goods uh, with about $30 billion in total revenue. Um, the ninth largest privately held company in the United States as well to add. Um, and uh, our customers consist of grocery stores, independent chain supermarkets, uh, military bases, and, and other institutions. Uh, we have about 8,000 customers in total with about 140,000 SKUs mm. uh, that differentiate between foods, groceries, non-food items, uh, service by our 60 or some odd warehouses. So you've got a lot of da- you've got a lot of warehouses, a lot of sites, but you've also got a lot of data because when those sites go active, you've got a lot of data going backwards and forwards these days. Yeah, absolutely. So the data is tremendous there, and there's so many different data feeds, um, and then the aggregation points are very important and key to actually how they're moving data. So there's a lot of different mainframe systems, then there's a lot of sub mid range systems as well that connect a lot of this data together. All right. So you said mainframes there. That I just want to pick up on that because that means you've got to cope with legacy. It's not like all of this fancy modern DevOps stuff, I'm guessing. Yeah, big time. Uh, you hit the nail right on the head. So we do operate with a lot of what I would say traditional legacy you know, systems. Yeah. Heritage. Frame or Heritage. Not. Yeah, there you go. That sounds much better. Um, <laughs> But the but the but the systems that actually run a lot of this and use that data, some of our warehouse management systems, they all aggregate a lot of this. It all consists of our order processing teams and our data yeah. processing teams. It all meets at a certain point. So, what was driving you guys to SD WAN then? Uh, most of the the challenges with our SD WAN began um, not exactly as uh, we were looking for a new initiative to implement SD WAN, but we ended up there as an actual uh, opportunity of in, in involving. We needed to do something to fix problems, right? So the business had grown uh, significantly, uh, but the network wasn't in alignment at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, mainframes and many of our other mission critical systems, uh, the traffic was not prioritized in any way. Uh, and the business wanted to move to a lot of different SaaS and PaaS solutions. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, those were our th- three big identified drivers at the time. And when we talk about a lot of our challenges from a team perspective, like when we were asked to, hey, go do this, um, we had aging and incapable edge routers. So that was a big challenge. Complex networking from just patchwork over and over and over again and trying to get around the different ACLs and the, the, you know, the policy-based routes here and then the QoS here, but it wasn't configured as well on mm-hmm. the other side. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had routers individually managed all across the place. Um, and uh, security, this was another key point, security at the warehouse uh, went edge was difficult to manage as well. Um, so it was, you know, we, we were talking about ACLs and everything from some places had Cisco. So the usual firewall. sort of confusion, I call it complexity confusion. Yeah. Configuring for configuring heritage costs is so confusing and it's just distressing because of the complexity that comes from sustaining that over time. Yeah. But so you got into the SD-WAN and you started moving towards it. What is it um, that you've been able to solve using SD-WAN compared to where you were before? Yeah, so for us, it came down to four category buckets of performance, Mm -hmm. security, and uh, it was an opportunity to be transformative. And then lastly, most importantly, was cost. So let's take those one by one. How did you fix the performance angle there? Because I I think I know the answer to this, but I want to hear it. (laughs) Yeah, so (laughs) we were easily at just making it very simple. We were able to prioritize traffic for mission critical applications that we once did not have the ease and flexibility to do so. Uh-huh. Um, right. We also were able to provide enough bandwidth for on demand or an unanticipated growth because part of the p- performance initiative involved taking some circuits that had not been looked at or reviewed in plenty of years. That some of them were <laughs> like we had like primary circuits that were five meg for like a hundred and fifty user base, and the back yeah. was like a you know a bonded T one. And I'm guessing that as a wholesaler, you've probably got warehouses in arcane places. Like you're not exactly sitting on the top of the internet backbone. Yeah, you got it. So that's yeah. also another challenge. So we do have, you know, a lot of reliance on cellular for GLTE mm. um, in a lot of different places. And in some cases, you know, the decision to go and invest to have something done on-prem or have, you know, another carrier yeah. like the environment would not be, you know, it's cost prohibitive. Right. Right. And the security side, you mentioned that. That's not something normally people raise when we're talking about SD-WAN. You're saying you want to boost security here? Yeah. So, no. What I would what I would say is, is it, it answered the question for us from our current security model, and, and I'll explain why. We had a lot of different Zscaler defects in place in the way mm-hmm. that it was architected initially. And we mm-hmm. had some warehouses and locations that broke out locally somehow through some you know, magic of, <laughs> of routing 101 and floating default routes and everything else yep. like that. And then we had some places that were all the way back calling to the data centers, uh, either to reach resources or get to the internet because they were going across MPLS. Hmm. But what we had was really that inconsistency. So the security model uh, wasn't something we could sustain. It wasn't something that we could actually manage either. We couldn't really put any governance wrapping around it. Uh, so the network visibility is what Silverpeak introduced. The centralized security administration was also big. Um, and we were able to rapidly deploy, right, in, in case something did come up. Uh, we mm. were able to treat it like a, nen- a next-gen firewall platform, if you would. And we were able to centrally manage it and deploy policies in the overlay very easy to mitigate anything that might be happening. So instead of having to go to an individual router or firewall and make a change to address some security need that cropped up, you had that centralized management and visibility to say, oh, okay, here's an issue, let's fix it right here. Yeah, the capability by design is a security benefit, 
you know, it does, it, it might not be what you would consider your IPS IDS big box firewall, but the availability, that capability of doing it is what, what increased our level of security capability. And the fact that you're now inspecting all the data that's leaving those sites. So even though the local site is breaking out, you might not have been passing it through a firewall or you might not have had any logging or inspection. And now by forwarding it through a third-party CASB, you're actually getting to see what people are browsing at those remote branches. And we could make the necessary adjustments if we were with with within a, a state of hybrid, uh, yeah. or if we had you know on demand requirements for uh, some sort of data load that they were getting ready to put on. We could actually mm. mitigate and handle that traffic. Um, how about application performance? Did you see changes there? Did end users notice? Yeah, so this was uh, probably the biggest thing uh, that that we can claim the fame as the benefit and value here. I mean, we went from constant you know, challenges with customers emailing and, and escalating and, and the CIO messages and, and the VP messages and the SVPs and we're in our busiest <laughs> seasons. And it really came down to something very simple. We weren't able to really see and effectively configure what we knew was wrong or how to implement to, 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 to resolve the problem. It, it's very hard when you're looking at this console and you know you got two or three different routers on each edge and you're trying to look at QoS, you're trying to get the ports, you're trying to understand. When we implemented this, it was like it was like a fresh set of glasses. I mean, <laughs> you know, we were able to see everything. And so from the application performance standpoint, it was very apparent. It was very instant because if someone called in um, and said, you know, hey, we're having issues with this, or if we were standing up a new application many times after Silver Peak implementation, we were able to say, yep, I see it. I see the port you're mentioning. I'm also seeing some other ports that, are ha- that this is happening on. And then instantly provision it and, pro- you know, give it its priority that it needed across the band. So uh, it was great. So that mean you, are you saying you could anticipate that some other endpoint might have the same problem and you could fix it because somebody had already raised a flag? Absolutely happened. So volume went down two of those. So it wasn't, we had, you know, 20, 30 different users in, in a location complaining about something uh, performance-wise once the user load increased. This mm-hmm. was important. So at certain times throughout the day, a particular application may be heavier than another time in the day. Right. Um, so we were able to see that, hmm, these waves, these peaks, these valleys, they do correlate. Let's go and put this ahead of everything else. And uh, mm-hmm. we were able to improve traffic by design. And much of that noise has stopped. Um, and even when it does flare up, we're easily able to quickly jump in and address it. So um, 60 locations, I, I, I understand you worked with a partner to, to roll out Edge Connect? Yeah, big time. We worked with a, a partner uh, out of Connecticut uh, named uh, Synactech. Hmm. Um, Synactech is a provider of many different solutions, but uh, in this case, they helped us uh, with uh, SD-WAN and as a whole, they were they were the liaison and you know the glue between us and Silver Peak, and uh, they helped us stand up a lot of the environment, architected. I'm sorry, architected and stand it up, <laughs> and uh, get it deployed. And when we ran into challenges, probably the biggest part is you know they were right there, right in the front of you know mm-hmm. making sure that we had the necessary rep- representation from uh, Silver Peak. You said off uh, off mic earlier. You said you actually managed to get a response from Silver Peak when things went you know, a little bit sideways. Yeah, yeah. So um, our entire Silver Peak account team has been phenomenal. Um, mm. they, they definitely demonstrate that they want to know what's wrong. They want to help you deploy it. They want to help you get it working the way it needs to work. And so they've been involved with the deployment from the beginning when we did early POCs with our sister mm-hmm. organization 
all the way up until now, they continuously reach out and say, hey, is there anything we can be helping with? They're not just calling to check in. And that's the cool part. They're actually yeah. wanting to know. The, I mean, that. Yeah. I mean, do, some companies do get that across the board, but you're not like the biggest network in the world. It doesn't sound right. like you're the right. biggest ever, right? Yeah. No, no, we, we certainly aren't. But, um, you mm-hmm. know, we, we do have, uh, you know, we, and, and, and that was one partner. Synac Tech was one. And, and the reason I bring up this other one is because yeah. there is value here in the circuit cost. Uh, we, we used basically a, a, a managed telecom provider, if you would. They're like an extension of yeah. our team and they assist with uh, all of the audits of the circuits installed, the order to the new service, you know, if you call them bandwidth brokers if you'd like. Yeah. Um, and, and that company is LiveTech. And LiveTech, we went from 280 circuits of what we had, you know, to date mm-hmm. um, at those sites down to audits that were 180 circuits now. That's nice. what the future is looking like, almost 100 I think more the more, I think the more important factor there is you're not doing that workload. That idea of talking to telcos just is a massive time suck and not very effective work. It's brutal. And, and subbing <laughs> in somebody who knows it and, you know, has relationships can save a lot of work. I want to move on to talking about you use Ring Central for collaboration. Have you... I'm gonna guess that this this just got a whole lot better once you got the silver peak in place. So tell me tell me what happened there. Bingo! Yeah, you, yeah. you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly how it was. So we went and tried to deploy Ring Central uh, at a couple of sites initially to do some POC. We ran into yeah. a lot of weird issues, um, and just like you mentioned, we then realized we had to change it, stagger it, mm. and make it that after we rolled the site to SD WAN, then we could roll out uh, Ring Central and most of what okay. you just speculated. Yeah. So this is a, an external SIP provider replacing the old heritage PABX type idea so that yeah. you have telephony going anywhere and everywhere. Yep. We had about uh, six to seven different uh, voice systems between mergers, acquisitions, and different ideas. And wow. ooh, mm-hmm. let's go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're saying with SD-WAN, one, you get this um, visibility into how performance, uh, how voice and real-time application performance is working. But two, you can also... Prioritize applications, including, I presume, Ring Central. Correct. So, in the, and from the last question, I want to I want to talk about here as we get towards the end of our time is, um, you be I imagine since you've got this in place compared to the old routing idea that we used to have is that you've got a lot more operational advantages. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that that is big time that the team conveyed uh, as they started rolling out old and new engineers. I want to be very clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. My my older engineers and and you know the folks that have been doing this for some time. Well, they were just dazzled, right? They're like, this is great. Um, and there's reasons. The reasons why primarily, not because it was, you know, terminals get heavy on the eyes, but it was literally because they could they could now take and actually educate um, some of the junior folks and the guys that are just coming up in the game on the network side and show them what some of this looks like visually and have them look at it and, and be able to support it. Uh, without them always having to be involved. So yeah. yes, it was a matter of clicking a button in some cases, but in a lot of cases, it was really educating them. So you see this this red or this green, let me explain to you what it means, mm-hmm. uh, versus mm-hmm. kind of looking at just the, the terminal, the console. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah, I see. Yeah. Instead of saying, sit here and watch me type, kid, they can actually yeah. get, get more involved into, yeah. Yeah. There you go. It, so you're devolving a lot of the break fix down to the operations instead of, you know, show cost strategy or something like that. It, you just go into the charts and then your your help desk or the and the people at the actual site can see what's going wrong. Yeah, that's exactly the strategy. So we're trying to get close to not necessarily res- resolution on first call or first inception of, but 
how can we actually enable the help desk and the folks in the IT operations to, to make a judgment or call something that's happening using data in front of them versus speculation, right? That's fantastic. Yeah, data-driven decisions. What an idea. And, and it also means that uh, it also means that the people on the ground can tie the logic together because the person on the ground can quite often link this thought to that thought to that, oh, I know what the problem is now. And knowing that it's either is the network or not the network um, is a part of, result, you know, oh, it's a desktop. Oh, this system isn't working. It, it's, it's quite a complex inter, inter, interwoven sort of system thing goes on there. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point. So that visual does give you that. And, and the intelligence within the software itself is capable of providing you just what you said. You know, it knows whether or not that path is good. It knows whether or not that traffic is being impacted. And you can see even with the, you know, the, the, the performance, you know, error correction and everything else, you can see, is there really something happening here that I've had to make adjustments to the traffic to fix? Um, or is there nothing happening here? And you can see that right within the graphs. Well, that brings us to the end of our time today. Uh, Leonard, thank you for joining us and thank you to Silver Peak for being a sponsor. And yes, thank you for being a valued listener. If you like what you hear, you can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter. That's at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn, like us on Facebook and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.